Sup, freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. The immense pleasure of sitting down with an OG Bitcoin podcaster, Ansel Linder. I vividly remember tuning in to his Bitcoin and Markets podcast weekly in the 2015-2016 bear market uh, and uh, got a lot of information and value from Ansel and arguably... uh, listening to his podcast helped me develop the confidence to start this podcast. So it was a very fun conversation for me personally. Uh, we talked uh, about Bitcoin and markets, uh, the Fed's policy right now, whether QE is inflationary or deflationary and a bunch of other stuff. I think you guys are going to like it. This episode is brought to you by great friends at the Cash App. You freaks should know about them. But if you don't know about them, let me tell you about them. The Cash App's helping you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 sats because you can make sats the standard within the app. We're no longer buying fractions of a Bitcoin, which some people don't even realize you can do yet. We're stacking whole sats. We need to change that unit of account so people realize that you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. There's still people out there who think you need to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can stack sats, whole sats at that. On top of that, you can stack slivers of stonks via the Cash App. If you are into stonks, if that is that your type of thing, if that tickles your fancy, if that gets you all hot and bothered, Cash App is allowing you to stack slivers of stonks. All right, you don't have to buy a whole stonk. If your favorite stonk is a little too expensive, uh, but you want to get exposure, Cash App investing is letting you buy as little as one dollar worth of that stonk, a sliver of a stonk. Uh, because all this is connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods. You can start stacking sats or slivers of stonks today. Uh, I should say the Cash App Investing is a subsidiary of Square, member SIPC. And as always, make sure you use the code stacking sats. That's S T A C K I N G S A T S. When you download the Cash App, you're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. And I know some of you, some of you bitch freaks, have been c- complaining about the. Uh, how loud the owl sound is. So I'll give you a soft owl today for you soft bitches out there. It's owls lacrosse. Enjoy this episode. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. On the back porch studio on a beautiful Friday afternoon. Very excited for this conversation. Sitting down with a gentleman whose smooth voice I've been listening to for years and in a voice of reason that helped me out early in my Bitcoin journey around 2015 when uh, I was trying to consume as much content as possible uh, and the scaling debates were starting to rage off. Uh, The gentleman uh, sitting across from my computer screen right now uh, was a voice of reason during that time. I'd like to introduce you freaks to Ansel Linder. Ansel, welcome to the podcast. Marty, it is an honor for me, man. You're the coolest guy in Bitcoin, so thanks for having me on. I don't know, man. I don't I don't think I can compete with your voice. You got the coolest, smoothest voice. It's you and Maddie <laughs> Mazinxious who are up there like number 
fighting for number one and two in my mind. Yep. Yeah. So what? Like we were just chatting a little bit about uh, the inception of your podcast, Bitcoin and Markets. If you guys haven't, uh, if you freaks haven't checked it out, definitely go check it out. Um, again, like it was a voice of reason for me, a beacon of light at a time when shit coinery was high, and the scaling debates were just uh, starting to lift off, and it was really hard to, uh, especially if you weren't technical enough to to understand. Uh, what the best path forward was, and you decided to start your podcast. What, what was the impetus for that? And and I guess we can rehash the the scaling debates a little bit for the freaks who weren't around before Segwit Two X. Yeah, well, that would be good because uh, we don't want to forget history where how we got to where we are today. But yeah, I started my podcast. Man, I don't remember now when exactly it was. I think it was 2015, and uh, it was because. I didn't feel like there was enough Bitcoin Maximals voices at the time. I mean, this is before the meme of Bitcoin Maximalism. So it was just a Bitcoiner voice going on that kind of had economic arguments. And so um, I started that uh, right in the heart of the scaling debate. And I was the first person, I think, to publicly say that uh, the user activated hard fork or user activated soft fork was going to work. Um, I said that the day after it dropped on GitHub. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, I'm really honored to hear people say that because that's why you start a podcast is to make a difference. I think at least that's why I did it. And it's been a journey. Yeah. Journey that's helped me start my own podcast <laughs> as well, which yeah. is, uh, no, it is. And it is crazy. Like back in the day, the, the sp- sparse, sparse resources that were to actually get good information and that's what i liked about bitcoin and markets particularly is that you brought the macro aspect into it. i think it was just you and um renegade investor back in the day yeah. who were making like the the macro uh arguments for bitcoin like uh on a consistent baseless basis from like a content production um standpoint and we'll like- get into Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. I had to give a shout out to uh, Junseth and Chris DeRose because those guys, mm-hmm. they, uh, I remember listening to them and they said, well, the, the hardest thing about podcasting is getting started. And so I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and here we are five years later. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Almost six years later. Yeah. Time flies. What, um, so what's been the craziest thing for you over, I guess the last five years building your podcast and, uh, sort of honing your craft and, your subject matter in um again like you have a very good uh finger on the pulse of fed policy and as it relates to the macro fundamental argument for bitcoin and how's that evolved it's evolved significantly right since 2015 well yeah fed pol- well my opinions on fed policy have evolved a lot just in the last i would say year and a half to two years um I would say the hardest thing about, well, just to break that up, that question up a little bit. So the hardest thing about podcasting over that time uh, was, especially in Bitcoin, uh, is all the the shit coinery and all the ICOs. And and you're like, you're watching other people take sponsorships and and do these launches of their ICO and making millions of dollars. And then, you, you know, the only thing that stands in the way of you doing that is like a principle that you want to be. Um, a good source of information. And so I think that honestly, that was like the biggest struggle. Uh, you probably deal with that too. I mean, I'm sure people 
contact you constantly, probably five times a day, trying to get you to review their white paper or say something about their project. Yeah, I respond no, and they say have fun staying poor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I actually don't respond to most people who reach out for advertising. Very selective. It's hard, right, to to remain uh, true to the ethos of Bitcoin. I'm not trying to signal like I'm more virtuous than anybody, but I I align very much with what you just said there. I just want quality information to get out there. It's fun. It's cool to make money off of this, but I'm not going to sell my soul <laughs> to make money. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it is, and uh, have fun staying poor. It is one of the, like, <laughs> it's not, a, it's at a point where I like a, a complete Zen with it, but it is funny watching these shit coin, uh, cycles happen over and over again. And just the, the basic gist of how, uh, they work mechanically is pretty much the same. It's just a, a different UI on top of it. That, that uh that makes it a new carrot for people to chase after yeah it's just a a new narrative on a ponzi scheme uh they they have to obscure it one more layer right that's what DeFi really is is it's just a obscured ico one more layer down right and so like let's let's help the freaks understand how it's it's not much different than the the pre-mine proof of work launches that were a big thing on Bitcoin talk back in like 2013, 2014, which eventually evolved into ICOs, which are now quote unquote DeFi, which are just again, ICOs and uh, pre-mine launches that you have a select few dumping on retail and making fun of you because you're poor. Well, it's a, I mean, there's no real new idea on Bitcoin. Um, every time you think you come up with a new idea, just go back on Bitcoin talk in like 2011 and you find out that somebody had that idea before you. And, um, then some, some OG told them why it was dumb and wouldn't work. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I think this is basically a competition for, um, supremacy of being money. And if you compete on features, like now we have all these smart contract platforms, that do all this stuff, but look, what's, what's so much better between Ethereum and Tron or all these other smart contract platforms that they're just going to cannibalize each other. There's no, no like uh, thing that makes them special. And they would actually be better if they were centralized because the only thing you need decentralization for is money to keep that monetary policy set at 21 million. But you need unstoppable touring, complete virtual machines. (laughs) Yeah. And that is, uh, but there is that like that noise in the space. It makes you think like, ah, am I missing out on an innovation, like a DeFi, like oh, the ability to put tokens up as collateral, get stable coins, and get interest out of that and yield farm. Is that really innovative? I don't think so. No, I don't think it is. Um, a lot of the, like we said, it's just another layer of obscuring things. So it does take a while for people to maybe figure out how to explain it. Why is this a scam? Uh, but we eventually learn. And a lot of times we don't want to put the time and effort into it. I've, I've told people this for years is that, um, you know, I don't have to read your white paper because I know it's stupid right off the bat because this is what this technology does. And you're trying to do something different than that. So it's obviously a, a scam or you don't know what's going on. Yeah. And on top of that, it's 
you see the same people over and over again, just re-architecting the same scam and, and positioning it. And then on top of that, these people like to virtue signal that these networks are to save the world. We're going to save starving people in, in far off countries. And then you, you look at the way like yield farming works and the amount of user interaction you need with these protocols. It's like you're never going to get Joe Schmo to, to buy Uniswap, turn it to die, trade it for whatever yams put up to, to, to yield some interest rate on top of that like it's complete pipe dream and then it's completely disingenuous to to market these things like they're they're going to be mass adopted because even the people who are very technical find it hard to get into these schemes yeah well it's it's um i lost my train of thought there what you what you when you're uh saying that it's too much user interaction at the end of the day too. Like, this, like Bitcoin was made to simplify things, right? Like you just want sound money that you're able to hold and know that's going to uh, maintain its purchasing power, hopefully relative to the dollar over time. Yeah. I mean, what, why you would buy into these schemes is to increase your purchasing power, to increase your value. And if you understand that, Oh, you can just be cloned like this sushi swap, cloned uniswap right they can just keep cloning it so what what gives you like an infinite ceiling on value for your token there's not much because you can just be cloned away if you're if your uh, value proposition is a feature that feature is going to get copied um bitcoin is competing on something as being the best where it's a fixed supply that is what it's competing on and you can't be more fixed than bitcoin no no and it's people can't come to the realization or they can't believe that Bitcoin being as dumb as it is from a protocol perspective and the fact that it's very narrow in its, uh, in its feature set, like people, I don't know if they get bored or they just get like anxious, like, Oh, it should do more. It should do more. And they're essentially just re-architecting the system we're trying to get away from. And they can't appreciate the beauty of Bitcoin simplicity. It's like, it, it frustrates people for some reason. Yeah, but it also rubs up against like startup culture. I don't know how much experience you have with that, but um, you know these people constantly looking for angel investors. They're pitching people all the time. They're they're trying to come up with this little tiny software app that they can make their their fortune off of, and it's kind of cutthroat. Um, I think that ICOs and maybe this DeFi stuff they they kind of rub up against that. Um, culture the startup kind of uh backstabbing cutthroat stuff that goes on yeah it's annoying culture too it's very emblematic of uh culture at large too like where we are as a society high time preference can't fiat. focus on anything like fiat culture yeah right uh are bitcoiners too virtuous do we think we're too virtuous or is there is there uh I think there's value in uh, championing the low time preference sort of crux of the Bitcoin ethos um, in society today at large. I mean, you see right now as we're heading up to the election, like the narrative changes every day and it seems like there's no focus on anything long term anymore. It's just a 24 hour news cycle. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of Bitcoin, the the good Bitcoiners out there, the good influencers that they didn't necessarily sign up to be influencers. They just led by example and they talked about low time preference. They talked. It's it's similar to some of these um, things like a Jordan Peterson or something. He just strikes a chord with the listener. And I think so real hardcore Bitcoiners with low time preference, they just strike a chord with so many people. Uh, that it's kind of natural to become an influencer. But now if you're trying to reach out and become an influencer in Bitcoin, I'm always suspicious of those people. And you don't want to let those people that are trying to, uh, you know, make a name for themselves or, or something. They're going to launch a shitcoin in two years. So we've seen this before. Yep. Yep. Every time. Richard, Richard Hart was one of those people. <laughs> Rick Creighton. Uh, who else? I mean, Roger Ver. Um, Roger's story is very tragic. It is. Particularly. It is. Well, he, he was kind of part of how I got in. You know, I was an ANCAP uh, with the f- interest in the Free State Project, uh, gold bug type. And so the Vares and the Voorheeses and the Max Kaisers and stuff, they they got me into this, uh, this whole space uh, originally. And so, it, yeah, it was very, very tragic to see the way those guys went. Well, not Max. He's he's pretty hardcore Bitcoin now, but he did brush with an altcoin at one point. But he's he's um, he's repented. He's repented, and now he's on a straight and narrow. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for you, for Roger or Eric, if you're listening, there's our arms are open to welcome you back. Just repent. No, you don't have to repent. You don't have to do anything. I don't think they will. But uh, Eric's story is a little interesting too. He likes to. He likes to poke poke the bear. He's a big believer in the crypto future, um, falling into the Brian Armstrong, naked mole rat uh, mentality that crypto is necessary for a borderless, permissionless financial system as they try to create a regulatory moat <laughs> um, for any newcomers. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm confused about some of those people, uh, especially Voorhees confuses me. Uh, he'll openly state that he's 90% Bitcoin, but then he provides this platform for Ponzi's to sell to greater fools. So I don't know. It's, it just is better to recognize them as not trustworthy and move on. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Speaking of not trustworthy, we cannot trust the fed. It's sort of the reason why we're here today is talk about fed policy. And you mentioned it before we hit record. Uh, And after we hit record that your, your view of the fed and their policy has sort of evolved, particularly over the last 18 months. And I guess the, the big crux of the debate of fed policy is whether or not it's inflationary or deflationary. And and how do you define those two terms in the context of the U S economy? And so I'm very curious to, to see what your mental framework has been and how it's, how it's adjusted and, how you're currently viewing um, the state of Fed's policy as it relates to inflation. Yeah, I mean, I came to this space as a gold bug, as an Austrian. And so uh, it was easy to recognize Bitcoin's kind of value proposition of sound money and stuff. And then I had an opinion on the Fed. Uh, and so I, I just, and it made sense. It fit what we were seeing. But like in 2018, we start seeing like the yield curve flattening. And we start seeing it's getting close to inverting. It's getting close to, and it then it inverted in 2019, and oh, a recession is coming. Well, we've been waiting for inflation. Sound money people have been waiting for inflation this whole time, and we, 
I mean, the Fed upped their balance sheet from like 500 billion to 4 trillion and oh, hyperinflation's around the corner. And 10 years later, we're going into a deflationary credit contraction time again. Where's the inflation? And so I had to really question, I, that was like, I questioned my assumptions and I uh, opened up to all these people talking about deflation. And so now that's, I'm, I'm on the deflation bandwagon. I don't think that we're gonna see a huge inflation in the dollar. Um, I think we're gonna see kind of a Japanification of the US, a Japanification of the world basically. And Bitcoin is gonna be kind of the only place where all the green shoots are and where any sort of, um, return you're going to find the return in bitcoin and everywhere else is going to be stuck at zero all right so let's dive into the dynamics of this why um why flooding of money or excuse me flooding the global economy with capital via the fed uh, window is leading to deflation how that deflation is materializing in the economy you alluded to the credit crunch um but what about prices? Uh, like for example, this year alone, the price of lumber is up something like 110 percent. The last I checked, uh, the real estate, uh, real estate, healthcare, university costs have skyrocketed over the last 15 years. Um, stock markets are at all-time highs. Is there an argument to be made that inflation lives in these assets, uh, not maybe your everyday uh, grocery list? Yeah, and that's that's the what I was going on for a long time is look that we see inflation in uh, bond prices and we see inflation in stock prices, uh, house prices, but um, you know I went back and looked at to uh, into Rothbard and Mises and and uh, Mises said that inflation inevitably uh, or prices broad prices inevitably increase when you have inflation, you might see it go through the economy from different sector to different sector or different industry to industry, but eventually it goes everywhere. And I would think 10 years would be enough to, to see a quadrupling of the base money, quote unquote, base money inflate everything. Um, and then you got to look at the arguments that deflation can also increase prices, right? Because deflation can destroy production, productive capacity. And so if you have productive capacity going down like this, you mentioned the lumber. Um, if supply chains get stopped, but the, there's still some demand there, right? The prices are going to increase, even though you are in a contraction. Uh, the industry is getting hurt and harmed and shrunk, shrinking, but prices are going up. Um, so I, I, I don't think we can look at solitary prices in specific industries and then draw a reverse conclusion that we have inflation. I think you need to start with the inflation and then draw the conclusion forward. Um, so, yeah, I don't think those two things necessarily go together. Interesting. Um, so you need to start with the inflation and draw the conclusions forward. So what would... A world in which inflation does exist in your definition look like well we have to we we'd have to identify what inflation is right inflation yeah. is a increase in the money supply um and then people will look at them too and be like oh look the money supply is going up so we that's inflation and inflation will create prices to go up um but 
I don't think that's necessarily what money is. I don't think that QE is inflationary. I don't think necessarily fiscal policy is inflationary either. Um, I think what is money today is credit. So credit has to be expanding to get inflation. If you have credit contraction, you by definition have deflation going on. And then the that deflation can cause all sorts of spasms in different prices. Just like inflation can cause price distortions, deflation can also cause price distortions on the way down. Uh, so yeah, I, I see that we're in a deflationary environment. Credit is contracting uh, for every, what is it, $3 of government spending, we get like $1 in GDP growth now or something like that. So it's a, uh, um, we're just in a deflationary environment. It's very hard to grow credit. And uh, these deflationary shocks um, are a symbol that we are in a deflationary environment. I don't think we're going to see inflation. Even though the Fed's trying to overshoot? Well, I think that is, I'm, I'm starting to call that the placebo effect because I don't think the Fed can print money. Um, I mean, legally, they can't print money. They can buy uh, they can shorten durations, right? They can shorten debt durations and they can give you reserve uh, casino chips uh, that you hold dollar denominated casino chips at the Fed. And you can call those Fed reserve or reserves held at the Fed. Uh, but that's not real money printing. Uh, so QE, actually what QE in my mind, QE is taking a liquid treasury or security out of the market and replacing it with illiquid reserves at the Fed. So QE is deflationary. The only reason why uh, you might see some inflation or some prices going up, um, the market could be rescued, quote unquote, rescued by QE is the placebo effect. People believe it's gonna cause inflation. And so they act as if it's gonna cause inflation and we can get 2%. But it, it, you can also look at it like, okay, so this actually works really well when you, um, think about the size of the inflation that we're getting. It, it's really hard to get to that 2% target. And when you talk about the placebo effect, oh, I dropped my pencil. When, I, when you get uh, talk about the placebo effect in medicine, um, the placebo will have a notable effect, right? People will actually, uh, you'll be able to measure it. It'll be statistically significant, but it won't be very good compared to the real medicine, the people that got the real medicine. Um, it's the same thing with inflation. So the placebo effect can get you that one or 2% inflation, but it's never going to get you 10. It's never going to quote unquote cure the system through letting it run hot. Um, you're just going to get maybe 1%. Interesting. And so, What so the mechanics of QE specifically? Think about that. You, you switch out assets between the Federal Reserve's books and the member banks' books, and you get them better, more liquid reserves. The member banks, in hopes that they will then loan out that money, and that would lead to the monetary supply inflation that many people expect. But we're finding that those banks aren't willing to take on that that credit risk. Um, they, they don't see an appetite from the market or, or maybe an appetite from the market, but they're not willing to lend that money out considering a certain market structure. And so is our credit system just completely borked right now? Like, uh, well, it takes two to tango, right? So in a loan, you have a lender and a borrower. 
And when rates are low, you have borrowers really with high demand. You, you want to take out that uh, 30 year mortgage at 2% or 1.5% uh, if you can get that, but banks aren't willing to lend. So you're, you're going to actually have tight monetary conditions because of the lender. Now, when interest rates are high, say 15%, it's going to be the opposite. You're going to have a surplus of lenders, but not very many people are going to want to borrow at that high price. So at high interest rates and low interest rates, you are actually in tight monetary conditions. It's only that sweet spot. Um, I don't know, five to t five to 10% that you're going to have easy monetary conditions where credit is expanding and things like that. So as long as interest rates are at zero, you're not going to see inflation. There's there. The banks are not going to lend credit will not expand. Yeah. And so how do you see this playing out in the near to medium term? Uh, like we, we're seeing Jerome Powell sort of pegging uh, Trump and uh, Pelosi to get something through Congress for, for fiscal stimulus. Um, he seems to be under the impression that the Fed is uh, all out of ammo and can really do nothing more at, at this point. And, um, so, like, where do we go next? Like, you mentioned a Japanification of the global economy. Is, is that essentially it? I think so. You know, people talk about maybe fiscal policy will get us inflation. You know, if the government spends, velocity of money will go up and that will get us uh, more inflation. But that's I think that's a misunderstanding of what fiscal policy is. You know, the, for the government to spend, they actually first take it out of the economy. Right. So they're they're just changing public savings or sorry, private savings for public spending. There's no increase in the money supply. And so that wouldn't be inflationary either. And maybe Jerome Powell is trying to pass the buck to the government and say, look, it's not us private bankers, you know, our private shareholders of the Federal Reserve. It's actually the, the elected officials that are keeping the economy down. So I don't know if they go to MMT or not, but if they do, I would expect there to be some sort of warning. It's not like they're going to just come out one day at some Fed meeting and say, uh, you know, oh, the this is what we talk with government, and they're going to start doing some MMT printing of money. Uh, I think it would take a long process. We'd see it coming for a year or two down the road that they're thinking about this, or they're forming some committee to talk about this. What it would look like? Oh, there's a working group at the Fed, and so I think we would see that coming, and we just don't see that right now. So as far as we know and that we can see out in the future, I would say we're just going to see zero, very low growth. 1% 1 1 growth every year, 2%, uh, very low interest rates, very low inflation, deflationary environment. Is that necessarily a bad thing? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I think Bitcoin actually, it's better for Bitcoin because people can slowly wake up. It's not like you are rushed into some hyperinflationary scenario where you have one year to get your capital out or two years, you know, you can kind of wake up slowly. Um, of course, you'll be late to the Bitcoin party, but you won't necessarily be late to exiting fiat because uh, if you have z really low inflation, you know, your purchasing power can last for a while. Um, but then it, I don't know if you listen to uh, Stacy Herbert and Max Kaiser's show and they talk about Jabo. 
the global insurrection against banker occupation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I think it's legit though, because if you have 0% growth, people get very frustrated. Uh, you start, the, the poor start seeing the rich maybe getting ahead a little better than the poor. And so there's riots in the streets and pretty soon there'll be tar and feathering. So that could, that could happen. But um, I think in general, um, it's a good thing for Bitcoin. A good thing for Bitcoin, but it's a good thing bad. for people. Uh, like, where do we get to a point where you have the flywheel, the economy sort of back on its feet and you have people building uh, cool things, innovative things, things that make us more efficient, more productive. Like does this deflationary environment uh, perturb that cycle and does it prevent it from uh, reaching uh, a capacity and potential that it, that it could uh, had, had the monetary and financial situation been a bit different? Um, not sure if I understand that. Yeah, like, how long do we have to put up with this deflationary environment mm. um, before we get back to a market cycle that's that's more run of the mill? Like, people are lending money, people are building things, people are paying back those loans. Um, yeah, I think. Um, well, if you look at Japan, they've been doing QE for what eight years, I think, or maybe 10 years longer than the US. So we probably at least have 10 more years, but they've also been um, um, just at zero growth for like 30 years. So the US could go on for another 20 years in this zero growth thing, if it weren't for Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin is gonna play a big role. Like I said, it's gonna be there for people to leak over onto Bitcoin. And that's where all the green shoots will be and, and things like that. Um, and that, that will be a process probably over the next decade. And then eventually one day there'll be a flipping, right? Where Bitcoin will take over from the dollar. Yeah. But now that we have Japanification, Japan situation sort of well understood and people are banking on like the U S like, Oh, since Japan cycle went like this, the U S following this cycle will take 10, 20 more years from now. You think people try to front run? that cycle and, and, exp and does that expedite um, the downfall of, of the US dollar or the financial system at all? Yeah, I think the people buying Bitcoin would be front running it. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but it's, it's again, it's the placebo effect. The, the more people doubt the Fed, the more they'll come out with, we're going to print money. Next time it's going to be a five trillion in six weeks instead of two trillion, whatever it was this time. And um, the same with the government. I just saw a headline like Trump floated a ten trillion dollar rescue package. So <laughs> it'll just get two. It'll just get bigger and bigger, and people will. It'll be very hard for the average person, average business person, even that's savvy. It'll be hard for them to like. How could this not cause inflation? But it's not gonna. By what metric, though? Like, are you looking at the CPI, the PCE? What do you think about the Chapwood Index and their their uh, reporting of inflation, which seems to be much higher than the CPI? They would argue that across some of the major cities here in the U.S., inflation's running at about ten percent annualized. Um, uh, 
in some cities for like the last five years at least. Well, I think just by the definition of money supply increase, it doesn't matter. I mean, the reason why they use PCI and CPI and wage inflation and sticky inflation and all these other things is because they don't know how to measure the money supply. That's why. If they could measure the money supply, they would just say, oh, yeah, we're going to get inflation. But they can't do it because now it's all mysterious in the back room. We, we interviewed uh, Jeff Schneider on my new podcast, FedWatch, that I do with CK on Bitcoin Magazine. And um, he was saying, yeah, every crisis, you'd have to get a new M measurement, you know, like M0, M1, M2. And we would be like on M22 by now if, because it's really hard to measure money. You don't know. You have to figure it out. The, the system is evolving. It's not like 1971 it just stopped evolving. It's been evolving the whole time. And every time there's a new regulation, the system routes around it again and invents some other crazy backroom deal between overnight desks at banks and they create different types of money. Uh, so we don't know, uh, <laughs> we just know the overall character is credit contraction or credit inflation or expansion. And so that's what we have to look at to measure inflation in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, when you consider things like the euro dollar uh, and how it's essentially just like a dark, dark matter market where you have no idea because the banks or just European banks, at least, are just able to pull those out of thin air and trade them between each other. And that's one of the most fascinating series uh, of macro. Was that with Jeff Snyder um, on Macro Voices that? Yeah, Macro Voices, Euro Dollar University. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and him dumping into that is the euro dollar world is just crazy when you try to even wrap your head around it. And even after listening to that university, that um, euro dollar university series that he did with Eric Townsend, it's still like, what the fuck is going on there? And so bringing it back to Bitcoin and how Bitcoin simplifies some of these things, like is everything too over-engineered in your mind financially? Um, is everything too interconnected? Do you think... Bitcoin brings us back to a simpler, um, easier to understand financial system, or will it just be an asset plugged into this already complex system? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting older, but I feel like a lot of the new technology that's coming out doesn't necessarily increase productivity, doesn't increase uh, our well-being and our happiness. It actually makes us, you know, um, less healthy and sadder, and as a population. And so, I think that we're probably going to reset like bitcoin will obviously people will save a lot more their time preference will be uh um a lot lower and there will be a period of like i don't know 10 20 years where people are have invested and they're waiting they're just waiting they they're sitting on their their stack and they're waiting for something else they're waiting for something better um and so i i kind of see a stop at least to you know uh, have you had jeff booth on I have, yes. Yeah, and so his def techno technology driving deflation argument. See, I think that comes to an end uh, because consumers will go away. Uh, people will, their preferences will change and they'll be more towards, uh, you know, raising a family. They'll be more towards planting a garden. Instead of uh, constantly working 80 hours a week, they're going to want to work 20 and sit on their Bitcoin stack. Um, so I think that's what maybe... 20 years from now looks like something like that. 
I'd be happy with that world. Yeah, I would. Selfishly, too. I'm a Bitcoiner, so I'm already sitting on the stack. Um, but will more people adjust that? Hopefully, and so I guess that's a good transition into like a Bitcoin conversation, like pricing Bitcoin. Um, I saw you posted um, a piece a couple of days ago. Consolidation is getting tight um, on your Bitcoin Pulse uh, newsletter, and um, like, where are we from a price structure? perspective in your mind like it seems like things have been very very consolidated volatility is very low it seems like the spring is just getting getting ready to pop so what's your view on the price right now well i'm a a big having believer and stock to flow believer Uh, i think that it will you know this is just natural compared to where we are in the having cycle um and you know, I don't know. I think there's, it's almost magic the way markets work and we don't know why the supply uh, or the happening has this effect, why the stock to flow has the effect, but it just does. Um, and so I think we are in the beginning of the parabolic move for Bitcoin now day to day. Yeah. On my, on my member newsletter, I do lots of, I talk a lot about um, individual like, on a weekly basis, where do I think it's going and the chart patterns and things. Um, but yeah, I think overall globally, when you step back, like on a month to month chart, it's, it's just going to start the next parabolic move right now. How, how high do you think we go? That's good. Uh, what's historically it's like 10 to 20 X on each bull run. So somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. And do you think these, these cycles persist? the way they have um, up to this point moving forward into the future. That's one theory I have. I don't think they, especially to the downside, I don't think they'll be as pronounced to the downside moving forward. Um, I'm not so convinced. Well, they have, I think they've gotten a little bit less to the downside already. Right. Um, I think it went from like 95 to 85 to now 82 or something percent on this last one. So um, yeah, I agree with you. I think it'll be less pronounced to the downside and probably the upside too. Um, We'll, instead of seeing a 20x, we'll see a 15x, then a 10x, and yeah. Yeah, it'll be uh So what do you think leads this next? Uh, you said you're a stock-to-flow believer. It's blasphemy to a lot of people. It is, what, what it would, is. What, what would you say to the stock-to-flow deniers? <laughs> well, I would tell them I don't know how it works, but it, look at the chart. Um, it's, it's pretty damn spot-on, and it's not, I mean – Obviously, it's not like there's some law of physics that this is describing. Okay, this is just describing a general way that things work. Um, I, I said on the FedWatch podcast that um, it's kind of like elevation. You get cooler with elevation. So as you go up, it gets cooler, but it doesn't have to. Like you can have uh, a hot plateau or something somewhere, uh, but it's kind of like stock to flow. So as as the stock to flow goes, what would that be up? Then price just goes up. That's it doesn't have to, but it's kind of a good rule to have. Yeah, no. And I saw an interesting chart on Twitter. I believe it was yesterday. Somebody dropped it like a flow chart, uh, trying to visualize the, the having of the subsidy. And I think the, the way he described it was actually really good. Like there's an 
information asymmetry built into the stock to flow model of people who understand the subsidies getting cut in half and therefore less supplies being distributed to market every block and they are buying bitcoins from weak hands and holding it uh knowing about the supply crunch and that that information asymmetry coupled with the the supply subsidy half uh really drives that stock to flow uh, into motion. Yeah. And markets, you never know how a market will react, but you know that it will react in a certain, uh, it'll react. Um, it won't stay the same after something has changed. And so, yeah, we, we know that something is going to happen and it's probably, uh, I mean, it's a good guess that when you cut the supply of something and you don't change anything else, the, the price will go up. Um, so it probably it's at least a point of departure, the stock to flow. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's funny how triggered people get by this this model. It's uh it's like yeah, it's for me it's like I don't me personally, like I think stock of flow the model is like a nice to have. I don't like to lead with it, like, hey, look at this model that's been created, this is why you should buy Bitcoin. But it's like, hey, you should buy Bitcoin because it's a peer to peer distributed sound digital money uh that seems to be working pretty well and by the way hey look at the stock to flow chart this model was put <laughs> together and it seems to be following it pretty pretty nicely yeah i mean it's not perfect because like a piece of art has a stock to flow of one right or whatever um there there is no new unique pieces of art that are being made that just like that um so yeah it's it's a, it's a good rule. It's a good model to depart from. And I, I don't know why people hate it so much. I think it's because they are like violently opposed to uh, predicting the future. And right. they, and that's what they think it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin is going to be $1 million by 2026. Just accept it for It's <laughs> happening. <laughs> uh, so what, um, what excites you about Bitcoin these days? Like what, uh, like you, you mentioned your ANCAP, Austrian roots. Do you mm -hmm. think Bitcoin's staying true to that? And what do you think like a world on a Bitcoin standard could look like? I mean, you already mentioned the um, people working 20 hours a week and raising families, but what else particularly, from like a tech perspective, interests you? Oh, that interests me tech technically-wise? Um, I mean, uh, censorship resistance and uh, unconfiscatability or whatever that term is, uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, I also think, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be the person that does this, but I'm excited to see the first person that gets sued or that gets, um, a, you know, arrested by the government of some, some way, and they say, no, I'm not giving you my keys. We're kind of seeing this with BitMEX right now, right? Um, and that is exciting. That's very exciting to me because it's testing – the unconfiscatability of Bitcoin. Yo, let's jump into this a little bit. What do you think this is a necessary hurdle for Bitcoin to overcome to sort of incite some animal spirits to pour into it? Or? Yeah, that's a good thought. I think, um, well, like, so the scaling debate was very important. Once Bitcoin, once uh, SegWit was activated, it cleared up a lot of uncertainty about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is upgraded 
who controls the code, who can influence the code and, and things of that nature. So um, this could be another similar thing to that. So we, uh, I mean, Tether has kind of gone down this road a little bit, but BitMEX is definitely um, front and center. And maybe this drags on for a year or two, but I, I think, yeah, however it turns out is going to set precedence for the future. That's for sure. And it will convince a lot of people one way or the other. Um, if they somehow force BitMEX to give over their, their multi-sig, um, that's going to be a big blow to Bitcoin, I think. What do you think? I think it's interesting. I think it's up to how spiteful uh, Arthur Hayes and Samuel Reed and the other executives are willing to be. Um, right, because they can just throw you in jail and say, we're not going to let you out until you sign these keys. I guess it's just like a, a battle of attrition at that point. And then you get into the the argument of if the government's allowed to lock them in a cage under that... that um, under those circumstances into perpetuity. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not like a legal expert, but I think they may be able to do that, right? Well, I'm, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but I would assume there would be some sort of maximum term that they could get for certain crimes. So maybe mm -hmm. 20 years or something. Yeah. Are they willing to sit in a cage to prove a point for Bitcoin? <sighs> that would talk about martyrdom. No, they probably wouldn't do that. I would say they, they probably use wasabi or some mixing service and get just close down bitmex and send those bitcoins somewhere else um and that would also prove bitcoin's uncensorability and and conf confiscation resistance or whatever yeah it just claimed to be hacked oh our insurance fund got hacked somebody moved the funds and actually have control of them yeah it will be interesting to see that's a, i mean that's a thought experiment i always play in my mind like somebody not that I'm doing anything illegal or expect this to happen, but just like, what if they came and took my hardware wallets and were like, we need you to sign this. And I was just like, no, <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, it also brings up game theory about like we, I mean, people have said for a long time um, where money will go where it's best treated. And so the government doesn't necessarily want to crack down too hard, the U S government, because then maybe some tech innovation will go elsewhere. And hide from hide from their the long arm of the u.s government uh, but uh, we'll see yeah it's, i think it's a very important case for sure yeah i mean just piggybacking on that thought like the doj came out this week with some pretty aggressive guy i mean just not aggressive but they came out with guidelines basically prove they're paying attention actually understand what's going on i think much better than anybody expected uh, and they really they highlighted privacy as something they do not like specifically in that report which is interesting and I think setting the, the groundwork um, to begin inf like enforcing um, enforcement against people innovating in the United States which I think is just terrible Uh because right, because it just achieves. You're going to achieve the opposite, mm -hmm. the opposite of the goal that you set out to to achieve. Like you just want. Yeah, you'll harden. You you'll harden Bitcoin. You'll harden the technologies. You'll get more mixers out there. You know, more people mixing their coins. They'll make it even harder to track where things are going. 
So yeah, yeah and you'll push you'll push innovation into areas that you deem as like enemies or like mm-hmm. or into jurisdictions that you you don't want to be innovating. And so it's like that prisoner's dilemma. Do you do you just let it run free and let your your citizens, your citizens, your subjects, the citizens of the country, uh, the United States, innovate at will? Um, knowing that there's a risk that they'll maybe build privacy tech and stuff like that, or do you try to clamp down and push that innovation elsewhere? And me personally, like I think the latter is going to happen. Unfortunately, um, I think there's going to be a big battle. Well, if you drill down on it more, like the individuals that are behind that report, do you think writing that report made them want to buy Bitcoin or not? Uh, I would imagine so. Yeah, I think so too. And so the more that people look into it, even if it's 1% of everybody that looks into it buys Bitcoin, I mean, slowly Bitcoin takes over and it's going to be, it's really hard to crack down on something when say 10% of your population owns it or 20%. So hopefully Bitcoin can scale up to that type of adoption before these type of uh, draconian uh, enforcement happens. That's a good point. And that's why seeing the uh, the trend of corporations, publicly traded corporations specifically, uh, absolutely dump, dumping Bitcoin on their balance sheet is is very encouraging. And do you, how do you think that plays out moving forward? Oh, it's just going to continue. Um, Square probably won't stop at one percent. They'll they'll go up to ten percent or twenty percent. I don't know. Um, more people. Obviously, there's there's some businesses that might fit with Bitcoin better. I don't know, like if Western Union would buy Bitcoin or, you know, some of these companies that might get disrupted by Bitcoin, then they would have more of a vested interest in not letting that happen. So they might diversify into Bitcoins uh, as holding some Bitcoin in their on their balance sheet. Uh, but yeah, it'll definitely continue. Yeah. It's exciting. It's like things that we've talked about for years. Yeah, it's happening. Finally, it's happening. The gift's <laughs> happening. Uh, it's crazy time. How early are we? Do you think? Oh, geez. Um, probably. I mean, what's the, the, the common hockey stick of technological adoption that we see? Uh, it's getting faster and faster. Um, I don't think that's, going to hold true for Bitcoin. It's probably going to be a little bit slower than some of the most recent things. Um, So I would say we're about halfway to being a significant player. Bitcoin is. Halfway. Interesting. But that's not necessarily uh, winning. It's just being in the conversation, right? Um, Being there at Bretton Woods 2.0. And people are talking about, oh, you, we will go with you on this, but you have to have Bitcoin backing it or, you know, something like that. So that's, we're about halfway to Bitcoin being seriously in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I think I can, I can get behind that as well. I mean, you see like more and more senators talking about it, uh, starting to, to, eke its way into the energy sector mm-hmm. uh it's just starting to ingrain its roots and everything its roots spread and sort of force bitcoin uh to be reckoned with in different industries different jurisdictions 
Um, yeah, it's fascinating. So do you, do you ever see a point in time where, uh, we're not podcasting and writing about Bitcoin because it's just a foregone conclusion that it exists and everybody understands what it is and, and we're unnecessary. No, I think it's going to get more and more popular. Listenership will go up because um, instead of talking to some freaks on the internet, you're talking to everybody, right? Uh, you're talking to uh, 20% of the population's interested in this instead of 2%. Uh, it's just going to grow our reach and hopefully our profitability and monetization. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that a little bit. The, uh, the Fed Talk podcast you started with CK. How's um? Why'd you guys decide to start that? He reached out to you. You reached out to him. Um, I've caught a couple episodes. Really good content, um, especially if you're a Fed nerd like myself. <laughs> um, yeah, the Bitcoin and Markets podcast is kind of on a hiatus, and I'm, I've started this thing with CK. Uh, I was a guest on like episode six of theirs, and then their other co-host left and so ck asked me to join he was like i think episode nine that i started or something like that uh and jumped on with him on that and we started interviewing macro people talking uh the deflation inflation debate and so that's uh it's been great what are the plans for the future continue the same um, inf um interview more and more macro people specifically macro experts that we want to peel apart that specific argument like how is the fed creating inflation where where does this go in the future like do we think fiscal policy is going to change things what uh what did the fed say this week that made you think that or you know just kind of peel really dive down into the the niche topics uh of the fed They're boring at the surface level, but when you uh, when you dive deep enough, it gets very interesting. You find out how crazy our monetary and financial system is. Yeah, and there's a there's a big market I think that's going to be coming over with gold bugs, um, gold bugs, or or even <laughs> followers of like Hedgeye or or some of these other type of places. They're I think they're going to really get interested in Bitcoin, and they're going to see like, oh well. Keith sold all his bitcoins. I was gonna say. <laughs> so dude I made, made a terrible trade this week. Yeah, so it's Keith sold all his bitcoins. So I need to start listening to somebody that knows what he's talking about, and uh, then we'll see people kind of move over to Bitcoin content. And Bitcoin as a topic can grow and grow. You got time preference. You got um, <laughs> carnivorism. You have uh, all sorts of things um, that Bitcoin touches on. And so I think podcasts, Bitcoin podcasts will kind of expand out into these other niches. Interesting. Bullish. I'm very happy to hear this. I've actually had like a, a scenario in my mind where like, like I said earlier, like people understand Bitcoin at some point in the next five to 10 years. And it's like, all right, Bitcoin exists. People get it. Uh, all the UI or all the technical uh, aspects have been, obfuscated behind good UIs and UX and uh, the need for me to speak into a mic and help hand uh, handhold people through the Bitcoin process sort of goes away and you just fade into the ether and look back and say, hey, that was a fun decade. Um, but it would be, yeah, I mean, 
Well, what's, what's the, what's the goal? What's the, um, um, what are you trying to accomplish by your podcast? Same thing. I just want people yeah, to understand Bitcoin. I think it's important imperative technology for society moving forward. I just want to provide a venue for people to learn about it. And at what point is that critical mass of collective knowledge hit where it's unnecessary, right? Or are people just going to have to continuously learn? Well, you'll probably find another another um, mission because like with my podcast, it was first the scaling debate, teaching people about that. And that kind of ended. And now it was like I was trying to figure out what I could do my podcast about. And now I've ended up with this inflation deflation debate and talking about the Fed because that's, a, I think, very, very important. I think Jeff Schneider's, the stuff that he's doing is – critical and i, I want to be a part of that um so i think it, once bitcoin does hit critical mass and you've achieved all of your goals then you'll probably find a new mission yeah I'm, i get bored easily so i'll be looking for one i'm sure <laughs> that's what that's why i'm happy uh, to be involved in great american mining because that that scratches my itch of um just being curious about something new which is the oil and gas industry and Learning about that alone is um, is keeping me very occupied and very engaged, which I think is exciting. Ansel, it's been um, it's been a pleasure to get you on here, man. Is there anything uh, you think we should wrap up with before we wave goodbye to the freaks? No, um, I can just tell people where to find me. Yeah, I'm doing the. Bitcoin Magazine podcast uh, called FedWatch. Uh, I still do my weekly newsletter, so you can find that at BitcoinAndMarkets.com. And my pod, my personal podcast has it's taking a little hiatus, but it will be back uh, sometime soon. And lastly, I did write the Bitcoin Dictionary, so you guys guys can find that at BitcoinDictionary.cc. I kind of uh, summarized years of learning about Bitcoin into terminology uh, or definitions for these books and it's kind of like each word is a little mini wikipedia article about it, a couple paragraphs so people can learn about the history of the terms maybe where to find more things uh about bitcoin so check it out bitcoindictionary.cc extremely valuable resource there's a a lot to a lot of history to understand a lot of uh, very specific terminology with an expansive history um to to sort of get yourself bootstrapped up on on what's going on and so thank you for producing the content that you do again it helped me out significantly when i was uh in the earlier part of my journey particularly around the um scaling debate and putting bitcoin in a macro context so i'm again very pumped that we were able to get this done and and thank you for coming on yeah thanks for having me marty uh you are a, a good influence on the space and you're doing god's work so Thanks. You are as well. We're all on the same team. <laughs> you you are too, freaks. Peace and love. Okay. <laughs>